Hello and welcome to the Learning Future Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Luca Parry. Thanks for being with us. And today, it's my delight to be speaking with Dr. Anantha Duryapa. Anantha is the inaugural director of the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development, known as MGIAP. It was the first UNESCO Category 1 Institute of Education in the Asia-Pacific, and it has a strong focus on social-emotional learning and digital, digital pedagogy, all in service of a kinder, healthier, and more just world for all. Anantha is an experienced environmental development economist, although he might say a confused economist now. Uh, he's received his PhD in economics from the University of Texas and has authored numerous books and journal articles and for some decades now has been a system leader, you know, working at a global level, trying to shift consciousness and practice around education and the environment. Anantha, thank you for joining the Learning Future podcast. Uh, happy to be here. It's great to have you. It's great to be connecting with you once again. Uh, these are strange times. They're remarkable times. Uh, just before our recording, we were talking about this. But what is something that you've been learning recently? It's an interesting uh, question. You know, you, you introduced me as an economist and as a confused economist. And I think it, uh, it leads very much to what I'm starting to uh, uh, realize is that the, the foundations that we were taught on when we were doing, our, especially with the doctor studies and stuff, is the whole notion of rationality mm. and how uh, humans are modeled as rational human beings. Now, it was interesting that then, then that there was this whole surge of behavioral economics, uh, Daniel Kahneman and others, who kind of said that, you know, it was, and then the notion of irrationality. Uh, but what has really fascinated me recently is mm. the role of emotions, uh, which we tend to sort of sort of take it for granted, but really not giving it the kind of due recognition in terms of how it influences our lives day to day, seconds to seconds, in fact, microseconds. Uh, mm. and, and then on introspection, I find how m many of my decisions have been so driven by emotions. Uh, and, and when you say that if a decision is being made with emotions, then it's irrational. I don't think so. I think rational decision-making has to account for emotions in that, mm. in that whole process. And that to say that we are irrational because we have emotions in our that, uh, <laughs> that it played a role, I think uh, does injustice to the the kind of beings we are, uh, you know, we are social beings and therefore emotion plays uh, such a big role. Now, so how do you, so that's the, the thing that I've learned is that uh, is, is rationality is the interlinked, interconnectedness of cognition and emotions uh, working in, in, uh, in symbiosis. Now, mm -hmm. The challenge is when the emotions then, you know, as you, you know, Paul Ackerman had, had alluded in terms of various emotions and stuff. So when you make a decision, when you're really angry, um, now, uh, is that the decision that you would have made if you were in a different state of mind and where, where you are able to regulate those emotions? And that's where we're getting into in terms of how uh, our education systems will need to start to change uh, to account for this uh, role of emotions and training our brains in terms of uh, for the emotions. Uh, we train our brains for maths and 
and literacy. Why not train our brains for emotions? Uh, I'm always surprised when they say, oh, you're manipulating with the brain. Uh, you know, you're trying to. <laughs> and it's like, don't you do that when you teach maths and, uh, and, and history and stuff? Uh, the minute you learn, your, you know, that's what's happening. Your neural networks are getting rewired uh, or created. So, so I think the thing that I've learned is that it, it, it's not right to say that if one makes a decision with emotions that is irrational, I think it's within the rational decision making from that person's perspective. Yeah. It's rational to me. It might not be rational to you, but it's <laughs> rational to me. And, it's, and I'm the rational decision maker. So, so that's how, so I think it's, it's how do we now incorporate emotions into that decision-making framework? That's fantastic, Anantha. Uh, and I mean, I think it links beautifully to the work that you're exploring there at UNESCO MGIEP, you know, the, the urgent need for social emotional learning, you know, how does that, what role does that play in terms of identifying and navigating emotions, mindful engagement, human flourishing and your piece around, yeah, somehow we're not trying to become machines. This kind of tyranny, as my colleague would say, Dr. Jane Clinton, the tyranny of cognitive obsession is such that we've forgotten about the other dimensions that truly make us human beings. Uh, so take us into that world a little bit. Why do we need to rethink learning? What is the role that, that education systems can play far more powerfully in helping every human being understand their emotions and make powerful decisions with them as opposed to you know despite them perhaps yeah you know i think it, so you've got two things there one is the whole notion of learning and then then we have the more formal uh, uh system which is the education i, I call that as an institution uh, mm -hmm. and and a formal uh institution that has been created to foster learning uh, rather than maybe in the past that it was done through experience, through dialogues, but here we have kind of systematized it. And I, I kind of see, I've always kind of looked at, you know, how uh, learning and how it has evolved. And I looked at the early days and I think this is a cross. I, I, and I, 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 I kind of like to stay away from of the Western discourse and the Eastern discourse. Uh, mm. It was never so disconnected. It was always, there was lots of interplay. During Aristotle time and during the times of Confucius and stuff, there was always a lot of uh, focus on dialogue. Mm. And it's about asking the bigger questions in life. And uh, yes, Matt, you know, Matt's and, and stuff was, uh, was important, but they, they had dialogues about it, even if you were looking at it. Uh, uh, mathematical principles, uh, axioms, uh, the Pythagoras, you know, yeah. very active dialogue and stuff. The only problem was that it was only among the elites. <laughs> so it was not a very uh, just equitable system in terms of giving it to the masses uh, where everybody could get into that kind of uh, process. Then we went into the, started the industrial era, era and, and so we sort of said, okay, let's give education to the masses, but I think with the wrong purpose. Mm. with the wrong goal. And the goal here is what we are now struggling with, is to create efficient, productive uh, cogs. So let's give the masses this, this knowledge about exploring, quest, uh, exploring very fundamental questions on, on beans and you know, what it means to be happy, 
is it is it is it possible to actually actually ever achieve a state of constant, constant happiness? What does that mean? Why are we here? What is our existence? What is our existence with other living beings? Mm. You know, I was so happy to hear recently in Spain that they have now passing a law where they recognize dogs as also sentient beings and oh, giving wow. them. The, the the kind of uh, I would say citizenship in terms of it's part of the family and stuff. Ah. And when you and when you relate with them, I, I, I think they've been really snotty uh, uh, little species. When we say we are the most intelligent and we are the only ones with emotions, yeah, <laughs> I think it's been extremely uh, um, discourteous to the others. So. Uh, so now I, th- I th- we are now at the, at the at the point where now we can go back to, uh, so we got where we had the stuff, but it was only for the elite and, mm-hmm. and the rest didn't have it. Then we brought it all to the masses, but we forgot about the whole dialogic process. Now yes. I think we have the opportunity to have that kind of a rich discussions of. Uh, uh, fundamental issues, uh, uh, fundamental questions. Of course, numeracy, literacy will be all part of that because you need to have that. But also understanding the whole notion of emotions, uh, meditation, uh, 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 mindfulness, because mm-hmm. those were all very essential parts of whole traditional uh, uh, education systems. Uh, but in the pro- of getting a chief uh, productivity, we have forgotten that. But again, I want to also be a bit cautious that there have been some forces, and I say naughty forces, nice. that have now trying to use mindfulness as a way to increase that productivity. <laughs> again, it's the <laughs> mindset. Of, so, you know, as an eco- I put my economist hat right now, and you sort of sure. say, you know, we use this production functions. And, and we talk about labor and capital. And then as you put more capital and labor, you, you move along that production function. And now we have reached some diminishing returns. Now we say, ah, you know what? We will have uh, social emotional and then we will have that production function jump up rather than moving <laughs> along it. You have a monotonic uh, jump. And then, my God, with the same capital and labor, we get a huge increase. Wrong. I don't think that's the that's the goal we should be looking at. I think that will automatically come. That's I call that as a positive externality. The goal should be for human flourishing, and uh, and this is why you know two years ago, maybe in, in fact the whole idea started off about three years ago. Uh, uh, my as you had uh, when you introduced me, I've been working primarily on the interface between uh, nature and uh, economics, uh, which brought into uh, human development. Mm. Um, and in that community, uh, we had always been uh, uh, cognizant of the need for multidisciplinary. Uh, huge uh, collective voices of experts and scientists working in the interface. And we have had these things called global assessments, the one that you most probably will, you know, most most of your readers would uh, or listeners would would uh, recognize would be the IPCC, ah, yes, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this huge body of experts who come every three, four years, and then they bring in all the literature, what the knowledge is, what has been published, so that the scientific quality and rigor is there to say, what do we know? What do we agree on? Or what? where do we have confidence of? 
like 90%, we, we have now 90 to 95% confident that we are into a two degree world. Yeah. Uh, that was not there uh, 30 years ago, but with this continuous, uh, and then we had the same for biodiversity, which is more where I spent a lot of uh, later years mm. uh, working on the interface between biodiversity, nature, and, and human flourishing, well-being, as we used to say. So when I came into the, into the field of education, I was a little bit surprised at the lack of these type of assessments. And when you talk about assessments in the education field, immediately they talk about PISA, the mm. that, you know student learning uh, exams, as you call it. Yeah. I don't call those assessments; it's just exams. Um, and uh, as so you know, I, I I detest exams, and I'll tell you a little bit about exams. They should be just. Uh, taken and uh, put into a dish, you know, those garbage uh, garburators and then just switch on the machine and just throw it off. It's garbage. Mm. Um, but but so we, we decided to have uh, to do something like that within the education uh, uh, community. And so we started this something called the IC, which is the International Science and Evidence Education Assessment. Uh, now, it's been a fantastic uh, experience of over the last two and a half years or so. COVID, unfortunately, uh, prevented us from actually getting together and mm. sitting around the table for three. Uh, for, usually we do this for a week, a very intensive 10, 10 hours a day kind of thing. We, we, we lock ourselves in a hotel and that's all we do. We just write, go back, discuss, uh, come back, revise, add and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were not able to do that, but we, we, you know, we did the second best with online and stuff. So that's that's going to be published and launched in uh, uh, March uh, oh, of 2022. Um, it's 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 turned out to be a humongous uh, project. Uh, we we had about 260 over uh, experts from across more than 45 countries. Uh, it was extensively peer reviewed. Um, uh, so we went through the whole peer reviewing process, two reviewers, uh, sometimes one, then uh, some of the others stepped in. Um, and then they had to comment on those uh, to make sure that, and then we had review editors to make sure that this whole process was done. That's very important. I think the rigor mm. as, uh, because now, especially with this pandemic, it has shown us that science Science is important, but we also have to make sure that the science has a rigor and has yeah. the collective voice of the scientific community rather than one or two voices here and there saying certain things. Those yes. are important, but we need to have that collective um, voice. And it doesn't have to always say we, we agree, but it is important to understand where the disagreements are and what kind of confidence that people are saying certain things. And so, so we're going to launch this. It's, it's turned out to be a 900-page uh, report in four volumes, but we, we will have a summary for decision makers. And we did a teaser event at the General Conference of UNESCO in November where we sort of had some of the headliners. And I think people liked it, some of the headliners. We, you know, mm-hmm. we weren't talking to, the, to what people would like to hear, that we have done well, but we need to strengthen. Uh, uh, no, we haven't done well. And we need to revise it and we need mm. to re- really drastically think about what our goals are. Uh, because I say if we achieve education as it is right now, we might be in more trouble than before. 
because the predatory on mindset of our education systems today will create more predators than nurturers. Uh, and so we have to completely change that goal. The goal is, is, is very important. That is, that's very interesting. I'm very, I'm excited to have a look at um, the, the summary for decision makers when that comes available in Nantha. And this, take us into this goal of education, because if, if you're a teacher or a school principal or a parent listening to our conversation today, sometimes this can just seem so overwhelming, you know. Um, but your point, is, as I understand it, is if we obsess about this idea of productivity, or let's even call it output, you know, it's based within this mechanistic paradigm, which is you're an economic unit and you're here to create productivity and to consume and it's we're missing the human in this and um, as the kind of truism the emerging truism goes you know what we want is first-class human beings not second-class robots so we, we need to think what is it that makes us uniquely human and how do we fl flourish and thrive within that so wh where like what have you seen across all the work that you do in, in intergovernmental and international levels like when you see a system really take seriously the path of shifting the goal of education. Because in many countries like Australia, we have a beautifully articulated goal for education, the Alice Springs Declaration, the Bantwe Declaration. And it's fantastic. You know, it's about creative and confident citizens that are you know, th thriving and flourishing. And yet there's a disconnect between the stated goal and then how it manifests within the education system. So how do we close that, that distance you know, between goal and system? Or, certainly goal and single school that might be, you know, working hard, but still stuck within a particular paradigm? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a tough question uh, in the sense that we have all the declarations. We have all the resolutions. Uh, if you looked at the Delors report of UNESCO, the Fauré report, and then now the latest uh, Futures of Education report, mm. Um, we, we have these lofty goals, uh, a, human, uh, a humanistic uh, approach to, to education, social justice, yes. and so forth. Um, and, you know, the, in the assessment that we have just talked about, uh, there was a working group that uh, focused on, on the whole notion of human flourishing. Mm. And what does that mean? Because when you say flourishing, okay, what does that mean in terms of real? And so I was very happy to see the, the co-chairs of that working group really push the, uh, the authors to sort of uh, not to put in, you know, to draw from all the different disciplines because you have the philosophers who are kind of really the, the kind of tend, tend to be the custodians of this whole discussion. Mm. But then you also, but I think there was a lot of input from the neurosciences. Now, this was really interesting. Yeah. Um, in a sense that uh, flourishing could be uh, uh, in a sense it can be trained um, uh -huh. so that was something new for somebody who has worked on flourishing for some time been uh, 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 looking at the work of Amartya Sen some of the other philosophers John Rawls and yeah. so forth and so on here, here comes a neuroscientist and says flourishing can be trained it's like what and uh totally skeptical but then yeah. that's the beauty of this dialogue uh, is that uh, it makes a point in terms of how you can rewire the neural networks such that the flourishing 
happens and that's training. So they go back to the training of the brain and creating neural networks that will spark those parts of the brain, create those neurotransmitters, oxytoxins, the dopamines and all that stuff, which makes us feel safe, makes mm. us happy. Basically, it, it's kind of, you know, a lot of people will take back when you say we are just walking masses of chemical interactions and electrical signals and fields. Yeah. But uh, it's a fascinating piece of uh, uh uh, tissue that we carry in our head, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when you when you go into neuroscience as an as a dumb economist started looking at it, you kind of, I was like, whoa, synapses, dentrals, um, mm. uh, how they connect with each other, and then the electric spark, and then you get the neuro, the chemicals, and then you feel good, and you feel, and and so I think it's it so important that this multidisciplinary approach is taken for our education systems, mm. where you can get these insights. Um, into this, so they, uh, you know, I, I go ranting. I'm sorry. I'll, let me come back to. No, no, so the whole notion of flourishing. Yeah. And I think it's about potentiality, and I, I like that term because they use yeah. the word potential. And then, kind of uh, as a as a as a well trained economist, as an opportunist, I looked at it and they said, "Hey, uh, this is a concept that's worth pushing forward." Is the notion of potentiality. Now. I, I contrast this to uh, the standard systems that we have now, which is meritocracy. Mm. And there's a, there's a brilliant book by Daniel Mokovitz. I think it was now 2020 or 2020. I think it was 2020 uh, publication, The Meritocracy Trap. Yeah. And he basically sort of says how that whole thing, that concept, which was, you know, the whole idea of a social equalizer, the, the equity uh, equalizer, has actually become one of the biggest uh, uh, divergences in a sense mm. that uh, the whole system has been hijacked. And, uh, and he's, he's not sort of saying that, you know, the people who have hijacked are, you know, not, uh, uh, he calls it the new aristocracies, the new aristocrats, but rather than the old aristocrats who lived off the capital of others or the labor of others, they still have to live off their own, but they, but they abuse the capital of others as well. And wow. therefore you see this huge inequality divide that is growing in this world. You know, the one, top 1% owning 54% of the global wealth and so forth is because they have captured the education system. And how he shows that the, the Ivy League, basically more than 70% of the population of the students of Ivy, Ivy League come from the top uh, 5% families and stuff of the world. Right. So I think if I'm not, if I, if I remember correctly is one in every 200 a uh, student is the one who comes from the middle class or you know rises up and stuff like that. So you yeah. but but I but he he warns that these they don't get in just by paying and getting in there. These are smart people as well. They are smart. Uh, and he, he and I like the Daniel in a sense he says I'm a product of that. And he yes, says when yes, I was in yeah. school I saw a lot more smarter students but they didn't have the kind of parents and 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 so forth you know uh, that kind of environment. Mm. So, so uh, I always, uh, I've never liked having these exams that we have uh, as, as a way to see how well you're doing. I remember from my school days, um, and my mom was a teacher, and when I come back very happy and I said, hey, I got 80%. 
you know, I've improved. Uh, the last time it was 65, now we got 80%. And the first response is, who was the highest? <laughs> what? I was like, well, yeah, it's him, yeah. the same chap again, you know, uh, he's got 95%. <laughs> And she says, well, your 80% is not good enough. He's 95. And I was yeah. like, well, when is this ever going to stop? Uh, you know, so what about, so I, I define potentiality as a good way of looking at the delta, the, the delta changes. Like if somebody is constantly improving, and, and, I, and this is what I always say, be your own benchmark. Mm. The system should encourage this concept of be your own benchmark. That's correct. Which means I, I've, I'm here, I have improving, and I'm improving. And of course, we always maintain the bare min- essentials that you need in terms of numeracy, literacy. We have all that uh, information to say what you need to have achieved by this particular uh, stage in your life. Or, in fact, now they talk, they say that learning is nonlinear. You shouldn't mm. have these processes, and there might be different uh, ways. Uh, you know, you might learn, and each one of us is different. Yeah. I might be more inclined towards maths than in language, and so I have to accommodate. But don't keep me back in grade three in maths when I'm already can go to grade five uh, if in the present system. But my language is much, much, much more difficult. So. You know, so you have this this very uh, flexible, adaptive uh, system that allows feedbacks and stuff. Mm. We are able to do that now with technology. And this is why MGIP focuses so much on digital pedagogy. And, I, and we made a decision very early on to develop our own learning platform, which will, which will provide this. I didn't want to go to the Google schools yeah. and Microsoft. Uh, for a number of reasons. One, it was too linear and it was focused on the same systems that we have right now, but just going digital. We wanted something really digital. That's why we use the term pedagogy. It's yeah. a digital pedagogy rather than ICT. Yeah. Very different. Great point. Because um, really it's a whole pedagogy by itself. And, uh, and you know, the whole thing about adaptive feedback, mm making mistakes is no problem because you make a mistake immediately you get a feedback with technology you can get and this is where i i tend to support ai in many ways artificial intelligence because we can do that yeah of course making sure that we put in systems to protect the child yeah that's very important the privacy is so important that's why Mm -hmm. the 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 advances by the eu with this gdpr and stuff is very very good Uh, we have to we have to uh to make sure, but let's take advantage of these uh, techniques as well. So the whole notion of potentiality, and then the other important thing that came out of this, and it alludes to my first uh, uh, talk about rationality with emotions, is that learning is not just cognition, cognition. Mm-hmm. it is also emotions as well. And, and so learning is influenced by emotions and emotions influence learning as well. Mm. And our decision-making, the way that we see the world is a combination of, and this they have already said. So we use the term a whole brain approach, which means the education systems have to integrate cognit- uh, the cognitive dimensions as well as the social and emotional dimension, uh, uh, dimension integrated. Mm. So you don't have a class on social-emotional. 
you know, you just don't go and say, okay, we'll start off with five minutes of meditation and then that's it. And then we go <laughs> on and start. No, yeah. it's integrated within the whole school. It's integrated within the, the whole uh, the time that you spend there. And uh, after a while, it becomes part of your DNA, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, well, we have, again, another new field of research, but epigenetic research, of course, that's showing the influences of lifestyle yeah. on... Our, well, how our genes express, and that's that opens up a whole other. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing thinking about the, reflecting on your thoughts on neuroscience, for example. And I mean, this was not a science three decades ago, really, of any significant impact. Now we're talking about neurobiology, or we're talking about the effective neurosciences. I mean, there's so much amazing work that's taking place here, and I love your reflections on potentiality, as really it was what what must be at the heart of all human development and human societies, perhaps. And this idea, be your own benchmark, that really, I, I want to ask you a question here, because be your own benchmark, I mean, from my vantage point, it seems like we are seeing these trends from, away from standardization to personalization, but that personalization can still be held within a system that is largely competitive, as opposed to being truly personal um, or even subjective. What do you see from the work you're doing and the amazing experiences, um, the different you know, pieces of work you've led internationally, what the future, the emerging future of education could become. If we're having this conversation in 2037, 15 years time, if we've been successful, what might schools and education systems be doing? Um, oh, that's a loaded question. It's like a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I, I see a vision like uh, where, where we are kind of transiting from the physical to the metaverse. Mm. I want to bring in the metaverse. Right, I'm glad you did. That sense that's becoming. And it's not something that you know was basically new by, uh, by Facebook, uh, Zuckerberg and others. Uh, mm. uh, science fiction authors have already been talking about this for a long time, the matrix and, and so forth. Uh, and you know, if you if you're in digital games, and then if you're you're using uh, uh, virtual reality, uh, you're already there in mm. many ways. Now, um, and I remember, I, I always think of uh, this term that Deepak Chopra uh, had in one of his books called Synchro Destiny. Ah, uh, yeah. And and I remember, if you go onto our website, we have a video which we produced nearly three years or four years ago. And it tells about uh, uh, two students in a class and then the teacher comes and gives uh, the, the grades, you know, your standard thing. And then the, and the student looks and she sees a C and, and then you see this whole uh, fall in the experience, you know, she's, mm. and then a friend beside her looks at it and then he puts a smiley face around the C and uh, and uh, turns the C into a smiley face, and then he makes it into a little arrow, and then he, he throws the arrow, and then we start this journey, and 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 it's a journey of where we bring in uh, there's maths, there's the Fibonacci uh, mm-hmm. spiral and uh, the golden ratio, but also empathy, compassion was also part of the the the, the building blocks and. Uh, 
and it and and then it goes around the world the the and that the paper plane goes around the world so it's spreading across the world and then it comes back to the class and the class has been transformed where they have these uh this uh, 3d glasses and they are connecting in this metaverse and they're and they're doing all this new mat, the match with the fibonacci uh, uh ratio uh, it, it's it's there, and it was mm. called C, uh, and I was like, my God, uh, you know, it's we didn't think about the metaverse <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> this was just like this was this is what we've had. I was always um, influenced by Ender's Game, um, ah, yes. you know, the movie and stuff, and where they learn through the. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, they used the kids in a bad way and destroyed a civilization, thinking that it was a game, but. Uh, but you know, so it's a, it's. I think the new is uh, where we are transiting from the metaverse to the physical world. I think it's important that we just don't live in this metaverse and that's it. It's yeah. not healthy. That's not what uh, human, we as human beings are as beings and living beings. Mm. But uh, how do we have? Because the potentiality of uh, with digital is huge but it could also uh, become extremely negative. Um, And this is why we call for an education system where social emotional learning is a foundational. And I, and I, and I think compassion is a competency Mm -hmm. that needs to be trained. And when you have empathy and compassion as a, as a competency, just like numeracy and literacy, I think we will have uh, hope for the future. So this is the question. Will kind brains automatically produce a peaceful and sustainable world? My hypothesis is that it is, and the axioms are there to show that it will. Using neurosciences, the the research coming out from the neurosciences. I loved uh, V.C. Ramachandran's uh, TED Talk uh, and where he, you know, the the famous uh, neuroscientist on uh, the phantom limbs. Ah, yes. And he he coined the empathy uh, neurons as the Gandhi neurons. Um, and and the and the institute picked that up very quickly because we have the name Gandhi as of the institute and say what we want to do is build Gandhi neural networks which he took a whole lifetime of experience experimentation uh, and stuff is to how do you build those kind of neural networks where there's so a compassion not to see and even going beyond Gandhi and, and sort of saying. We don't see any differences between people, but yeah. we're just all of the same. Ananta, I love uh, this. I, I, gosh, you said some wonderful things just then. A hypothesis. Will kind brains create a peaceful world? Uh, you know, and as you say, the axioms are there, and I think we're seeing the evidence play out. But compassion as a competency, as important, if not more important, than you know, the foundation skills of literacy and numeracy, uh, this this idea of synchro um, yeah, synchro destiny um, oh, so so interesting and I think as you say and the reason I'm really quite taken that MGIP has gone for this digital pedagogy because one of the things that we know we can train for really powerfully with technology is things like empathy when you're in an immersive environment you're very quite quickly able to transcend the ego and have a, have a truly transformative experience somewhere. And that, that actually can enable us to connect. And of course, there's also 
huge danger that it can be misused for a whole range of other things. Um, but gosh, this, uh, some of the takeaways for me from this conversation, you know, be your own benchmark, potentiality as being, you know, really the core feature that we may want to, we might have, no, not may want to, like we should position as the goal of education as human flourishing. Uh, so I'd love for you to just, if it's at all possible, give us some take home messages for the listeners today. What would you, what, what is it you want to leave us with pondering on, you know, perhaps, you know, jumping into dialogic process on in future as well? I, the take home is let's all try to be kind to ourselves and to all other living beings. Practice. And it's so difficult. Every morning I finish off uh, uh, you know, the pra practice and say, be kind. And I always say, okay, today I'm going to interact with so-and-so. Be kind. And then when I reflect the next morning, I said, oh, God, I forgot. <laughs> and it was like, you know, back to uh, this, the, the kind of critic and, mm. and stuff. And, I, and so continuously practice uh, because uh, competency is an action. It's 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 not a it's not a intellectual uh, process. It's not a it's uh, it's not cognition in in sort of uh, you know reading and knowing about compare. You have to practice, which means that the networks will get rewired. That mm -hmm. it becomes what Kahneman talks about: system one thinking. The immediate thing is to be kind. That's mm -hmm. my immediate. Not not immediate is to be. Uh, to fight or you know the the three Fs of the first reaction, but to change it to be not the three Fs, but the kind, 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 kind to yourself, kind to others, and kind to nature. That's fantastic. I call it the K cube. The K cubed. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for your kindness today uh, and for your generosity as well, Ananta, in having a conversation with us here at the Learning Future. Uh, you know we've been big fans of your work there at MGIAP and it's just wonderful to, to see the changes that you're continuing to make. Um, and so look forward to some of those, the release of some of those really big reports as well and the Futures of Education report, of course, that came out earlier, uh, more late last year, I should say. Um, yeah, it's a delight to connect with you and uh, try to create a kinder world, kinder brains, and then maybe just maybe a kinder society for all. Thank you, Luca. I, I really had fun today, this morning. Um, and then I'll, I'm going to try to see if I'm going to be able to practice what I said this morning. <laughs> <laughs> this is the coherence piece, isn't it, for all of us? Yeah. If I get 50%, 50%, I'm happy. Well, self -forgiveness. <laughs> Remember, I've been trained yeah. as an economist. <laughs> <laughs> well, a recovering economist, I think, you know, as, as you would say. But um, no, it's a delight uh, always to connect with you, Anantha, and I'm sure there'll be many more opportunities um, as we keep doing the work we do. So thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. You as well.